Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. This is the story of a bad review and a very famous fellow. The review was about hotels, and the man was on his way from Philadelphia to Savannah. No rooms or beds which appeared tolerable, he wrote, everything else having a dirty appearance. But the traveler wasn't some disgruntled contributor to Yelp. His name was George Washington, and he wrote his review in a journal which described a 1791 tour of his brand new country. Now, you'd think that George Washington could find some halfway decent places to stay, wouldn't you? Well, the problem was that there really were no halfway decent places. A.K. Sandoval Strauss is the author of the book Hotel and American History, and he's an associate professor of history at Penn State. He says, before the birth of the modern hotel, there were certainly taverns to stay at, but they generally weren't all that nice or spacious or easily found, which presented a serious problem for this country that had just been created. Nations in Europe and elsewhere in the world... uh regularly received foreign dignitaries, usually in the sort of castles or the palaces of the sovereign. And there was nothing like that in the United States because we had no kings. So as a result, people said, well, if we're going to act like a major power, we have to have the kinds of proper accommodations where trade legations or foreign ambassadors uh, can be put up in a style that is appropriate to their station. Otherwise, we're going to look kind of bush league, to be honest. And a country with scattered taverns featuring a few hay-stuffed beds here and there presented yet another problem. It couldn't be the sort of cutting-edge nation-on-the-move that many of its early leaders hoped it would be. I mean, if you needed to go on a business trip and you had no way of knowing whether you could find a place to sleep at night, would you go? If you think of a couple of hundred years ago, or a little bit more than that, at the dawn of the hotel era, travel was actually fairly dangerous. Travel was very uh, catch-as-catch-can. So if you were out at night in the winter and you couldn't find somewhere to stay, you could freeze to death, right? There was no guarantee of any kind. The explosion of hotels beginning around 1800 and continuing for the next 200 years came to symbolize American inventiveness and mobility. They changed our culture and the culture of the world. They were places where brilliant minds met, where casual lovers met, where people encountered faces and ideas unlike any they'd ever known, and where people were barred because they were the wrong race or religion. If you happen to be traveling at this time of year, as many of us are, the thought of hotels can conjure up images of cookie-cutter rectangles clustered around airports. But the story of those places is a lot more revealing than you might imagine. A.K. Sandoval-Strauss says, initially, hotels marked Americans' willingness to rethink themselves as a people, to stray from the places that they knew, and generally, to be a little bit more accepting of strangers. Remember that up to, let's say, just before the revolution, a lot of towns and cities literally had officials whose job it was to go around and if they found somebody who didn't belong in the town and did not have a reason to be there, to the legal term was that you would warn them out. You'd more or less approach them, say, hey, you don't look like you're from around here. What are you doing here? And if they had a reason like, well, I'm visiting such and such a merchant, um, they might say, well, okay, sir, on you go. Uh, but if, if you did not have a sufficient explanation, the idea was, well, you shouldn't be competing with people here for work. You shouldn't become a public charge. It was automatically suspicious for you to be in a place where people didn't recognize you. Do you think then that that like accelerated the mixing of cultures? Because when you have people coming into a place where they're not like the people around them, 
I mean, some of that is like people learn trends from other people. Like they learn other ways to dress. They learn other ideas. I mean, they, they may mix with people they never would have talked to or thought about before. Exactly. And Americans very much took pride in this, especially in the 1820s when hotels went from, well, there are a few here, there, to uh, there's one in every serious city or town. Mm. There was a, a whole new sort of slogan and ideology that built up around them. They were called palaces of the public. And Americans said, you know, in Europe, the sovereign may have a palace, but it is, you know, the sign of despotism and anti-republicanism. Whereas here we have grand palaces, but they don't belong to the king. They belong to the people. And commentators would go on and on about how wonderful it was to go and sit in the common parlor at the hotel and rub elbows with, you know, those around you in the, in the sort of spirit of kinship of, you know, here we are all Americans and for a regular common man to sit at the table with a political leader, you know, that was seen as a real achievement. So hmm. it became a, a hallmark of accommodations in the United States to really declare that social mixing was a sign of, you know, this is who we are hmm. as Americans. Hmm. Um, let's talk about scandal or the darker side of hotels for a minute. One thing uh, that happened to hotels as they proliferated was that they um, became places for extramarital affairs for prostitution. I wonder if that's something that was widespread, if Americans started worrying about that in terms of like thinking about the hotels in their town. Oh, absolutely. I mean, first, let's remember that inns and taverns were long considered places of bad behavior and immorality. What changed with hotels is that they were so much larger and had so many more rooms uh, that it was easier to conceal what you were doing. Right, sort of debauchery in an inn or a tavern was going to be pretty much visible to everybody, but with a 500-room hotel, there'd be these mm-hmm. long corridors you kind of sneak off without being seen. Um, and indeed, that there's a story. It's one of those probably apocryphal things in which a preacher was inveighing against hotels in the mid 19th century, and somebody said, "Well, you know, why are you so afraid of these institutions?" And he said, "You know, any place with a bar and that many beds has to be trouble." <laughs> So the combination of yeah. alcohol to lower one's inhibitions and lots and lots of beds, that was automatically suspect. Hmm. And indeed, what's interesting is that, of course, hotel keepers had to figure out how to kind of straddle the boundary between morality and business by being as respectable as they needed to be so that so they didn't get a bad reputation among respectable people, but not exactly turning away know, customers who maybe didn't want to stay an entire night or two or three, but just wanted it for a few hours. So they'd, you know, for example, hotel keepers, um, if some traveling theater company comes through and the hotel keeper sees the daughter of a local prominent man with, you know, drinking champagne with one of the actors and, you know, he would immediately go, you know, find her, pull her away and send for her father because they knew, really? okay, uh, if, if somebody respectable is going to be involved in debauchery, that can't happen. On the other <laughs> hand, they knew perfectly well that there'd be professionals uh, working the hotel at all times. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with A.K. Sandoval Strauss. He's an associate professor of history at Penn State and the author of the book Hotel, an American History. Um, one big piece of the story of hotels is that for a long time, Hotels could bar people just because of who they were from staying at the hotel. And you have this amazing picture in your book um, 
It's from Atlanta from 1962, uh, so not that long ago, but it's of a man protesting hotel segregation. I'm just going to read the sign that he says. It says, um, quote, 12 southern cities have open hotels. Why not Atlanta? And the sign says NAACP at the bottom. And right next to this guy who is on the street, like on the sidewalk, uh, protesting that Atlanta doesn't have desegregated hotels is a member of the Ku Klux Klan in a white hood. Um, Hotel segregation went on for a long time in America, um, and there were finally major court rulings against the practice. So was this hotels ultimately just kind of following court orders, and did they generally not uh, voluntarily desegregate? Well, it, it depended. In some places it was, right? There were a lot of hotel keepers, like Conrad Hilton, for example, was very much in favor of equality in hotels because he saw that it was extremely embarrassing for the United States, which in the middle of the 20th century was fighting a propaganda war with the Soviet Union. It was highly embarrassing when uh, the agricultural minister of the African nation of Chad would show up at a hotel in Washington, D.C. and be told, you can't stay here because you're black, hmm. right? If there were dignitaries from Haiti, if there were dignitaries from East Asia, from Latin America, racial discrimination was just deeply embarrassing and damaging to America's position in the Cold War. Hmm. So... Out of anti-communism, um, Conrad Hilton becomes a real fighter for equality. Hmm. There are entire states, like Illinois actually has a public accommodations equality requirement going back to the 1880s. But there were other states, most but not all in the South, which simply said we are not going to pass that kind of a law. And so in 1964, the U.S. Congress passes the Civil Rights Act of 1964, but then private hotel keepers, most notably in the South, and and it was the Heart of Atlanta Motel versus United States case in 1964 that leads to that ruling. So there had been state laws, there had been individual hotel companies that voluntarily desegregated, but for everyone else, it required overcoming that private property objection. When you think about hotels over the last few decades as they've just continue to proliferate as they've consolidated and in a lot of ways feel very cookie cutter, like there's tons of them outside airports. It's such a familiar site. It almost doesn't matter what airport you're flying into. What do you make of this hotel industry that you've studied going back hundreds of years, but that in the last few decades seems to have also really undergone major changes? Well, Interestingly, since about the 1980s, there has been a backlash against standardization. Huh. What is considered new and innovative changes. If in the first half of the 20th century, uh, the innovation was hotels that are reliable, that lots of people can afford. Um, Holiday that, Inn you know, is like the emblem it, of this, right? You can count on it. It's Holiday Inn at every in Chicago, in L.A., it's, it's Holiday Inn. That seemed like a good thing, right. but eventually yeah. people started to say, you know, I've, I'm seeing, I'm, I've stayed at this hotel in two different cities and the same <laughs> pictures are up on the walls, right. the same carpets are on the floors. This is incredibly boring. Especially high-end hotel keepers began to say, you know, people want something special, something interesting, something local. That was a great time for historic hotels saying, ah, well, you can stay in some glass box cookie cutter by the airport or you can stay in, you know, such and such a hotel in the historic core of Memphis or the historic core of Boston. And they'd really play up the, the local connections. They'd find old uh, sort of 
advertisements for these hotels and say, ah, yes, we go back to our foundation in, in, in 1872. And they really began to turn to history and turn to local color and flavor as a way of saying, you know, a hotel stay shouldn't be boring. It should be an integral part of your trip to this new and unusual place. Hmm. I would be remiss, obviously, without mentioning the rise of Airbnb, which isn't a hotel, but obviously is just like hotels, is meant for people on vacation or on business. How much sort of pain has Airbnb caused for the hotel industry? What do you make of this of the rise of something that's a hotel alternative, not a hotel, but has so incredible. It's just grown by leaps and bounds since being this little website. And it's worth an incredible amount of money. So obviously, a lot of Americans like it. Yeah. I mean, it's a real problem for the industry. I should say that the industry was already feeling the effects of online booking, right? Mm. So that when people started being able to to compare prices across cities and across uh, uh, platforms, that already drove down the profitability of hotels right there. Then Airbnb made it even worse because it was a a lower cost and unlicensed competitor that offered a you know an inferior product but it's so much less money, right? You you can't get room service and they're not going to give you a, a pair of pantyhose or some shaving cream at somebody's private house like right. at a hotel, right. but it's so much cheaper that a lot of people go for it. So that that once again reduced the profit margins of hotels and uh, for example, they've tried to to make Airbnb premises become licensed because they say this is simply unfair competition. That is, I think, one of the things that has led to some of the recent labor actions is mm-hmm. that corporations are feeling a bit squeezed. They're very profitable. Marriott is hugely profitable, um, but they're also looking to find ways to cut their costs. And right. one of those is to not pay their workers, frankly, what they're their due, what they're worth. Another is to try to mechanize parts of room service or food delivery. So they're trying to replace people hmm. or pay people less. Uh, and that's what's led to this you know, large strike of, I think it began as 8,000 people yeah. uh, a couple of months ago. Right at Marriott, so that, yeah, all around the country, you've seen people in different cities striking. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So it's, it, it is tough for them. So is there something that creative um, that hotels can come up with to compete with Airbnb? Or do you think it's a kind of war of attrition where in the end the hotel industry is just going to become smaller? I mean, you're just going to see bankruptcies and, you know, it's sort of a zero-sum game. As Airbnb rises, the hotel industry must fall to some degree. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things that they – emphasize is the social life of the lobby, right? When they have a really swank bar, when they have really elegant restaurants, um, it's a way of saying, hey, if you want to be out there among the beautiful people, meeting interesting folks, um, that's the same kind of principle as, for example, a bar. You can always stay at home and drink. That's kind of sad in a way, but (laughs) the, the, the whole point of paying, you know, 10 or 20 times uh, the cost per unit of alcohol in a bar is that it's social, right? It's sort of uh, there are interactions that happen. There's, you know, commiserating. There's flirting. There's there's 
various kinds of activity. And I think hotels have tried to revive uh, the social life of their lobbies and of their bars and of their restaurants as a way of saying, hey, you can stay in Airbnb and it's cheaper, but you're not going to have uh, a stimulating or a sexy or a like an important business connection kind of an experience just sitting in somebody's spare bedroom. <laughs> A.K. Sandoval Strauss is an associate professor of history at Penn State. He's the author of the book Hotel and American History. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been delightful. We asked you how you feel about hotels and Airbnbs, especially if you travel a lot. And it's hard to find a more frequent traveler than Jason, a performer with Cirque du Soleil, who wrote to us. He's from New Mexico, and he now travels 48 weeks a year. I am an acrobat, and then I also double as a technician. And when you travel with Cirque du Soleil, you keep unusual hours. We show up with about 80 people in the middle of the night, like last night we drove in, and we expect our room keys laid out. Uh, alphabetical order, the packet with the internet, local restaurants, everything along those lines. And it's just, it's something, you know, 48 cities a year you come to expect. And if those expectations aren't met, don't think the tired circus performers don't notice. Jason did when he checked into a room in Arlington, Virginia, right outside Washington, D.C. And last night, it was just done a little more sloppy. But when hotels get it right... He notices that, too. Last week, we were in Norfolk, Virginia, and the hotel staff, I asked where a burger place was because we'd gotten in about 1 in the morning. And they didn't point me in there. One of the bellhops walked me to the street and sort of gave me more hands-on directions. And it's that little thing that makes it not really feel like a hotel as much as you would think. And here's some more tidbits from someone whose travel schedule will knock most people's socks off. Jason travels with his own French press and a jet boil backpacking stove in case there's not a coffee maker in his hotel room. He often doesn't get his room made up every day. He's fine with using the same towels and bed sheets. He believes strongly in hotel reward programs. He doesn't use the shampoo or soap they give you. And he's going to keep traveling, he says, as long as he's young. Though his girlfriend is in a show in Dubai right now, so he may be headed out that way sometime soon. Jason Davenport is an acrobat and a technician with Cirque du Soleil. We'll have a list of his travel tips on our website, innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Sollinger, associate producer Mark Filipino, and engineer Doug Sugertz. We also have production help from Wen Lei and Asil Kibbe. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Trying how to look like every pooper. Super duper, come let's mix with Rockefellers. Hope it sticks or rumble around us in the mix.